Hey fellow superhero cinephiles, did you know that almost 30% of adults say they haven't read a book in the past year? The primary reason why is a lack of time. Well, Audible's here to help with the gift of found time. Thanks to Audible, you can listen to audiobooks like Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, or Slugfest, inside the epic 50-year battle between Marvel and DC. Read up on the history of superheroes in comics and movies with Grant Morrison's Super Gods. You can also check out Vanguard, my original superhero novel series, or try The Vril Agenda or The Adventures of Fortune McCall, both of which were written by our dearly departed host emeritus, Derek Ferguson. Whatever you're looking for, Audible has thousands of titles that you can consume while commuting, exercising, cooking, or just relaxing at home. And not only audiobooks, an Audible membership also gives you access to tons of content like podcasts, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible originals that you won't find anywhere else. To give you a taste of what you can get, Audible has partnered with this show to provide listeners with a free 30-day trial. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash supercinemapod, and with your free trial, you get one free audiobook and two free Audible originals. In fact, you get to keep those titles even if you cancel before the trial is over. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to audibletrial.com slash supercinemapod and start your free trial today. began 400 years ago, when a small boy saw his father savagely murdered by pirates of the Sang Brotherhood. That same boy swore an oath of vengeance to fight piracy, greed, and cruelty in all its forms. And he became the first phantom. I'm his descendant, Diana. Sworn to carry out his oath. The mantle of the phantom was passed down from father to son. Twenty phantoms came before me. Uh, no one knew that. They all thought it was the same phantom. They all thought he was mortal. That's why they called him the ghost who walks. No, I'm not <laughs> immortal, Diana. I was born right here in this cave and educated in America. But when my father was killed, I came back to take his place. One day, your own son will take your place. Yes. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine. And uh, so for fans of superheroes, fans of comic books, they probably most know, some may not, that there was a kind of a predecessor to Superman and Batman and all that. And those were the, uh, the pulp heroes. These were guys like Doc Savage and The Shadow, and, and they were mostly in, in pulp magazines in prose format, and then they eventually served as a stepping stone to the superheroes. In fact, many elements of Doc Savage can be found in Superman, many elements of The Shadow can be found in Batman, and so on. And, and we're, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about one of these heroes that have been translated into, into live-action movies, and we're doing that with uh, today's guest, who is a pulp author himself, and that's John Brunning. John, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Great, uh, great. So welcome to the show. Uh, before we get started talking about today's movie, uh, why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, as you said, the name is John Brunning. I am uh, 
I'm many things, actually. Uh, I am the author of the multi-part uh, Midnight Guardian series, which is published by Flinch Books, which is a small press imprint uh, that was launched about six years ago, 2015, by uh, Jim Beard, also a writer-editor in the Ohio area, in, uh, in the Toledo area, and myself. Uh, and we, we, we publish our own stuff, our own, our own novels, our own characters, as well as we... Uh, we also develop anthologies where we invite uh, numerous writers to uh, gather around a specific topic or genre and uh, just have at it and do what they do best. Mm -hmm. um, so that is that is sort of the short version. Um, I've been a professional writer for about 35, 36 years. Started out as a journalist in the mid-1980s. I transitioned into marketing in the early 2000s. Uh, so I've been I've been a scribe of one kind or another for uh, for for more than three decades. So okay. I've been doing this for a while. Yes, yeah, almost my entire life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the the pulp heroes, and well, let's talk about superheroes in general. Uh, were you a, a fan of superheroes growing up? Oh my up? gosh! Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> I learned to read somewhere around the age of five, and about 20 minutes later, I was reading comic books. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I think the gateway drug for me was actually Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. But once, once the reading started, um, I, I did about maybe 20 minutes of Dick and Jane, and then I went right to Superman. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably spent the first 20 to 25 years of my life immersed in comics. Uh, it got to be kind of an expensive hobby by the time I was coming out of college, so I just sort of transitioned out of that and got more into prose reading but uh yeah. I'm, I've, I've been reading everything for like the the vast majority of my life but that yeah there were a lot of certainly a lot of comics in the first uh, 20 to 25 years so you so say I that pretty, i was pretty well immersed yeah so you say that uh saturday morning cartoons is your gateway drug any yeah. any <laughs> any show in particular that was the one that kind of got you hooked I would have to say now you got to remember I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it was probably the uh, what was then called the New Adventures of Superman. Uh, it was it was produced by Filmation Studios, which was probably their first big name title uh, to come out of that shop. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I think that series started somewhere around '66 or '67. It was voiced by Bud Collier, who had done the voice of Superman in uh, in in the 1940s on the radio. Okay. Uh, as well as well as the Fleischer comic, uh, the the Fleischer uh, animated uh, shorts during uh, during the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, the guy had an amazing voice, and when you're five years old and you hear that that deep resonant voice coming out of your TV, you just I mean, you're you're just hooked. And, uh, right. and like I said, you know, I I come from Cleveland, so you know that's you know the birthplace of Superman. So I just it's sort of like if you're from here, it's kind of Superman is kind of in your DNA, whether you right. whether you whether you're a fan or not. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, for, I, I, it's funny. A lot of us, I think, seem to get into comics through that route. For me, it was, yes. you know, it was in the 90s. It was Batman, the animated series and, and X-Men that got me into it. Mm -hmm. um, sure. and, and, you know, now people are getting into the movies and all sorts of stuff like that. So sure. so it it's always cool to see how to learn how people have kind of found their way into this little niche of ours. Mm -hmm. Um, now, what about uh, the pulp stuff? Because you're you're a fan of the pulp stuff as well, correct? Yeah, that that came along later, um, and it's hard to know where exactly where and when that happened. Um, it was sort of a confluence of events uh, or a confluence of circumstances. Um, certainly, my my dad he was a big fan of the pulps back in the back in the the original pulp era of the '30s and '40s. Um, he read Doc Savage. He read The Shadow. Um, 
uh, he, he, he read a lot of comics in the early days. I think he was reading Captain America. He was spending a lot of time at the local movie house on Saturdays, watching Westerns, watching cliff, cliffhanger serials. Um, so, you know, which is all kind of the same vibe that makes up the, you know, the pulps. So right. I, 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 I guess I would have to say I, I started dialing into the pulps probably later than a lot of folks do. I think I started reading Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars stories somewhere around the I want to say the 1990s so I'm mm-hmm. like at that point at that point I'm in, I'm in my late 20s or thereabouts and I'm I'm really starting to dial into um Edgar Rice Burroughs in particular and the pulps in general mm-hmm. okay and uh were any of those that particularly stood out for you that were kind of like your go-tos well uh it, it like I said it's it started with the Burroughs the, the Mars series and then uh, I, I started you know I, I started wondering who, who the heck is this Doc Savage guy mm-hmm. um, and I was starting to dig around some local bookstores and not having much luck because you know people who collect the, the, the Bantam paperbacks they they don't let go of those but uh, right and then along I, I worked on a street where there was a really great little bookshop and uh, and the woman the proprietor there and she's still the proprietor there like 30 years later uh she said uh she said uh, she called me at my office one day and she said you were looking for doc savage right and i said yeah and she said some guy just brought in about 60 bantam paperbacks do you want want me to hold them aside i said hell yes (laughs) and i I was there the next day and uh because i was such a frequent customer she gave me a really sweet deal and i bought i i brought these things home for like 30 or 40 bucks and there there were like 60 uh, 60 different titles and uh they're still here in my office and i'm and you know, I, I I have yet to make my. It's been it's been more than twenty years since since I bought those from. I've yet to make my way all the way through all of them. But uh, <laughs> um, but they they were they were sort of the beginning of a lot of pulp collecting of a lot of different titles, a lot of different characters, mm-hmm. a lot of different genres. Yeah, I've um I found that since because I didn't really know much about the pulps except for little things here and there, like stuff that was in movies or TV. Um, but I didn't really read any of the original stuff until probably about the same time, probably about like my late, my mid late twenties. Um, okay, sure. And, and I, uh, I, and I reading some of those stuff, it's, they can be, a, they can be a, a tough read um, in, mm-hmm, a, in a yes. modern context. So yes, the characters are the character, but the characters are really, are really fascinating. I've always found. Yes. It, it, they, they make, there, even when the even when the reading is sometimes tough going, the, the characters as as concepts I think are fascinating. Yeah, just, absolutely. Uh, you know, even even if the if the prose is clunky sometimes, just the, the concept of this character and who what this character is all about and how, and how they came to be and why they do what they do, that's always kind of a fascinating concept. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the popes have had a really interesting track record because there have been the, these different periods of revival for um, for different pulp characters. So you know that most mm-hmm. of them started out in the in the 30s during the Great Depression, and then when they started, I think it was the 70s was probably like the next big boom of yes. them when you had I like so. all these these paperback publishers putting out these collections. There were like actually, a lot of yeah. Actually, the Bantam paperback started coming out in the 60s. I, oh, okay. I, I couldn't, I think it was 66 when they first started reprinting the Doc Savage pulps from 30 years prior. Mm. Uh, but I think, I think that whole series started around 66 and it went as far as I think I want to say about 81 or 82. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was actually a little, even a little, a little earlier than what you're saying. But yeah, yeah. You're, you're in the right ballpark. And also, like in the, I think it was maybe the the 70s or the 80s, they had started a bunch of comic publishers had also started putting out stuff. Like there was, yes, Denny O'Neill's the uh, Shadow series, probably the most yes. famous of those, the yes, most successful. Sure. 
Um, but then also there was like their Doc Savage comics. I remember yes. seeing mm-hmm. too, and um, mm-hmm. the Avenger as well. I think and yes, and then in the '90s there was this really interesting period where so this was you know superhero movies hadn't really quite hit it big yet. I mean, you would have those standouts like Superman the movie and and sure. Batman, sure. but sure. superhero movies in general they hadn't really quite you know hit the the kind of zeitgeist that they that they did they would later either in the early sure. 2000s or later with the revival with iron man and the dark knight but mm-hmm. in the 90s you had this interesting thing where there was a lot of pulp stuff that was being optioned and being made into movies and the the obviously you know indiana jones was clearly inspired by the pulps and all that sure but sure. uh, as for direct adaptations, there were three big ones in the 90s. There was there was The Rocketeer in 91, and then um, The Shadow, I believe, was in 1994. And then and then the, today's movie, what we're talking about today, The Phantom, in 1996. And Right. But the, but th- the thing to remember, though, is that the, the Phantom did not start out in the pulse. Right. He started out as – right, just, just to clarify that, he started yeah. out as, as, a, as a newspaper adventure strip, sure, by Lee Falk. Yeah, yeah, you're actually yeah. uh, you're actually one step ahead of me on that. I was just okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I'm jumping um, the gun. <laughs> but yeah, he, and uh, the Phantom is this interesting bridge character between the pulps yes. and, and superheroes because he was so. mm-hmm. he was like the very first character to actually have. <clears throat> I mean, you could argue that the the pulp heroes wore costumes of a sort, but mostly it was just like suits with masks and that kind of stuff. Right. Right, the Phantom right. was the first one who actually had like this colorful spandex costume, which was later yes. became the template for for Superman and Batman and all the yes. other superheroes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With the striped trunks, right? With the striped <laughs> trunks, which they left out of this movie, thankfully, <laughs> wisely so, I think. But... Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I'm not sure if you know anything about that, but what do you think? If you have any uh, information about that, you know, just being a, a bigger fan of the pulps than I am, about why that there was kind of like this pulp revival in movies and TV in the 90s. Because yeah. beyond those three movies, you also had some stuff going on on TV. You had stuff like the the Tia Carrera Relic Hunter TV series, was, was I think in the late 90s. Um, mm-hmm. You also had um, uh, Sam Raimi's Dark Man, which was much more pulpish than it is superhero, yes. I think. And, and also yes. Sam Raimi's original um mantis pilot which was much more pulp infused than the tv show that followed yes i think um i think you kind of hit it on the head a minute ago when you mentioned indiana jones Mm -hmm. i think uh let's see that franchise the 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 first movie was in 81 i believe um and i think that really i mean and, and and granted you had a couple guys at the helm of that who were just you know just blue chippers. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, these are guys, these are A-list, you know, Spielberg and George Lucas. I mean, you really can't go wrong with that kind of a team. And they and they really tapped into um, not just the pulp sensibility. They they certainly did that, but I, I think also and something I mentioned a minute ago, uh, uh, the, the cliffhanger serial. I think, mm-hmm. and, and they said as much. Um, I, I think either Spielberg or, or Lucas or both of them said we really w- we were going for that that classic 1930s, 1940s cliffhanger serial where like every 15 or 20 minutes, the hero gets himself into a serious jam and it looks pretty hopeless, but somehow he pulls it out. Yeah, think, actually, yeah, you could you could actually watch it with a stopwatch mm-hmm. and you can, yes. you can track it and, it and it works out pretty well. Yes. Have. So I think, I think the success of that franchise pretty much from 81 until... I think the third movie was in 89. I, I could be getting my dates wrong and I apologize for not having that at my fingertips, but um, I think the third movie, which, which by 89, many, many, you're right, yeah. ma, ma, many consider to be the best, you know, Sean Connery with uh, 
uh, uh, uh, what was it called? Indiana Jones and the, uh, the last crusade. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, th those were so successful that I think a lot of producers and directors said, okay, let's do, cause, cause let's face it. That's how Hollywood works. Mm -hmm. Figure out, figure out what's working and just do more of that. Right. And I think, I think a lot of producers were looking at that franchise saying, okay, you know, that that's working that period, 1930s, mm -hmm. uh, depression slash world war two. That's, that's the period that that's sort of the sweet spot as far as the, you know, mm -hmm. the historical setting for adventure stories like this. Yeah. And now granted, we're talking about movies. We're talking about movies now that, that, that are now into the, going into the nineties. But I think, I think there was still enough of that residual success of that franchise in the eighties. Um, and, and certainly the Batman movie in 89, it was sort of timeless. Mm -hmm. you, you, you watch that thing for two hours and you can't tell what period of time that movie takes place in. And right. I think, you know, I, I think it was the same thing that it was sort of like kind of, banking on this sort of this sort of retro sensibility to these stories because for whatever reason that's what people were i think you saw more of that in the 90s when you started getting into movies like you just mentioned the rocketeer mm -hmm. the shadow the phantom and uh probably one or two others i'm not thinking of but uh but yeah that was the big trifecta of the 90s i think yeah and probably also adding to the idea of looking to the pulps would have been uh conan the barbarian because that was in 82 yes. Sure, sure, um, sure. So I think that would probably also have had some influence on that. Uh, so yeah, that makes sense too. And these, and also, you know, if you're trying to do something superhero-esque, you're trying to have your own Batman, it makes sense to go with these more grounded characters uh, like the Shadow or or the Rocketeer or or yeah. the Phantom because there's so much cheaper to do than um, than trying to do, you know, trying to adapt something that's that's much bigger that requires more special effects. Right. Right. I think uh, um, I, I think each of those three movies did an admirable job. Mm -hmm. um, I you know with the, the technology did, did not exist yet, whereby the, you could make a movie like what we've seen come out of Marvel Studios in the last ten or twelve years. Right. Uh, but but certainly you know given the tools that were available at that time, it, the filmmaking tools, all three of those movies, e even even if they didn't necessarily do well at the box office or with the critics. Just visually, I think they were they, they did a respectable job of, of of telling the story they wanted to tell with the effects to make it believable. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a good um, a good point. And I think of those, if you're kind of ranking those three, I think I would probably put the Rocketeer at the top of the pile, and um, I put the Shadow at the bottom, and then in the middle, like right in the middle, I'd have the Phantom. Is how I'd I think I agree. I, I think I agree. Um, certainly, the Rocketeer has has pardon the bad choice of words has legs all its own. I mean, it just. Mm -hmm. I mean that thing. I mean, it, it kind of came and went in the theaters after I don't I don't know exactly how long it ran in the theaters, but but my gosh, I mean that thing has certainly like has developed a cult following over the last thirty years. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, so much uh, so that Disney Plus is even doing. Um, I think it, I think they're doing a new animated series yes, about the Rocketeer so. as well. I so, so yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah, and that that movie has got a real timeless quality. Like I, and it, and I think it's it has a lot to do with. Um, uh, Joe Johnston directed that, if I'm remembering yes. correctly. Yes, he did. And, yes, and he definitely is someone who has that that kind of pulp sensibility. He had worked on the Indiana Jones movies as well, and then he did he and he brought a lot of that kind of sensibility when he did uh, Captain America: The First Avenger as well. It's funny you say that, and and I don't want to digress too much, and I'm sure you don't either. But I, you know, when I when I when I watched and and I got to say, Captain America: The First Avenger is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, movie out of the Marvel, mm -hmm. the whole Marvel Studios, uh, the whole that whole franchise. It just when I watched that movie, I thought, you know what? A lot of this movie is a nod to the Rocketeer, and yeah. it was almost—it almost felt like the Rocketeer was like Joe Johnston's warm-up 
for the big night, which was oh. Captain America: The First Ameri- First First Avenger. Absolutely, um, it just, yeah. It's it just, it just there, there are there are subtle, small, but but unmistakable callbacks to the Rocketeer mm-hmm. in Captain America: First Avenger, and I think uh, in in a lot of respects, in 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 almost a sentimental way, um, they're they're kind of connected to each other mm-hmm. and, and by by design. I think by by Johnston's design. I think. Yeah, and uh, and Lee Falk. So with the Phantom, um, yes. he had Lee Falk had started this in 1936. Correct, and and he had done it. It looks, if I'm reading this correctly, had done it pretty much continuously up until his death. And he died yes. in um, uh, when was it? It passed away. It was. Not I think that it was the. I think it was the 90s. I think I'm not sure about that. Uh, but he he lived a good long life, and he yeah. spent a lot of it doing the phantom yeah and almost entirely by him yeah that's uh which is you know you want to talk about a long run on a comic that's yeah you know, yeah i mean he had I mean, he, he had a he had a lot of different artists working for him. i mean he, he was he was the sole credit on the yeah. strip but he i and i don't know i mean there were many there were many artists who have worked yeah. on the phantom along the way uh 1999 uh, so you're right late 90s okay. all right okay um and yeah i mean you talk about you know stan lee and jack kirby on fantastic four or chris claremont on x-men or, or peter david on, on hulk and you look at mm-hmm. lee falk on the phantom like that's yeah. probably like, the record i don't think anyone has come close to would have, will well, ever come 30, close to being that record 36 to 99 that's 60 some years and yeah you know yeah. And, and, yeah that's uh I, I don't know where you get the stamina to stay with one character for that long. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got trouble going past six books, so I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so were you a fan of the, of the Phantom, the Phantom comics? You know, I knew of the Phantom certainly. Um, mm. uh, and, and I had a small handful of Charlton comics when Charlton had the, had licensing rights to, to, to publish uh, Phantom comics and a incredible artist named Don Newton. Mm. Um, and to, to I, I regret to this day that for whatever reason I sold them or, or, or traded them for something I don't know what, but I don't have them anymore, and I kick myself to this day. But I, I can't say I was like knee deep, a, a knee deep fan, or, or neck deep fan in, in the Phantom. But I, I certainly knew of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I had followed him a little bit in the, in, in uh, one of the local papers that car- newspapers that carried him for a while. I I, I knew the general story. Um, I can't say I was like you know, a hardcore, I, I knew, you know, I knew the backstory and I knew all the minutia about the, 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 the phantom, uh, the phantom legend, but mm-hmm. I certainly was aware of him, you know, as, as a, as a, you know, a, a, a viable and long running hero in both newspapers and comic books. Yeah. I had, I had known nothing about him. For me, it was with all these, these pulp heroes, it was always the, um, it was always the the superhero trappings that that got me into interested in them in the first sure, place. Sure. Um, and one of the things I liked about the Phantom, which I think was a failure of the Shadow and the Rocketeer, is um, they're not shy about showing him in costume. Right? He spends yes. a lot. Of, I was I was watching this movie last night, and I was surprised at how much time Billy Zane actually spends in the suit because that yes. was not common at that time. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I I, I think. Uh... You know, I, I think I, I remember my 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 initial takeaway the first time I saw the 1989 Batman film was, you know, I, I walked out of the theater thinking that was great, but I wish I'd seen more Batman. Yeah, right. Yeah. I wish I'd seen more Michael Keaton in the Batman suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was I think that was a takeaway for a lot of people. And, and and you're right. I mean, you saw a lot of the Phantom. You saw a lot of Kit Walker in the suit in daylight. You yeah. know, he was actually like you you could actually see him. He wasn't this shadowy figure in the in the in the in the in the dark recesses of the jungle. He was like 
he was full on and it was it was bright purple yeah and, uh, yeah not the most earthy tone when you when you when you're running around the jungle or, or riding a, riding a white horse to the jungle it just you know bright purple just doesn't it, you don't equate that with a, a, a jungle avenger but but there he was yeah that's one of those weird choices <laughs> they made back in those days yeah. uh, and it, it's funny when i was watching it last night and i'm thinking as i'm watching the movie i'm like this costume looks pretty damn good for for what they're doing. I mean, you know, credit to them for going full. If it had been a different color, I think it would have been a different story. But I think the fact that it yeah. was such a dark color it helps it work a little bit better. But it was it's, funny. It, I'm watching it, and my wife walks by, and she sees the TV, and she's like, "That looks ridiculous." <laughs> That's funny. She must know my wife because my wife said the same thing because uh, <laughs> she, she, she watched it with me several years ago, and she said she just said, "I, I can't, I can't connect to this purple suit." And uh, mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but that aside, I, I think you're right. I mean, it, I think it helped that like, you know, there's a couple scenes where, where, uh, um, Billy Zane has his shirt off. The guy's incredibly ripped in this movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he, he, he fills out the suit pretty well. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's true to the, it's, it's true to the original design mm-hmm. minus, minus the striped trunks. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, you know, and, and, and like I say, Zane's in great shape. So, uh, he, he you know, he, he, he can, he, he pulls it off. He makes it believable. Um, for yeah. Sure. And yeah. Um, you're talking about his uh, his build. He had spent a good year just like working out right? nonstop. Yeah. And wow. because yeah. the original suit they had made had like molded muscles. It was more like mm-hmm. in the vein of like the Batman suit. Right. Um, right. And then by the time filming it started, Zane just didn't need it because <laughs> he was, yeah. so, he yeah. was so buff. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and you know, also real credit to to Zane is that he had become a big fan of the Phantom when he was working on um, Dead Calm in uh, 1989. And okay, when he was on the set there, someone had introduced him to the Phantom comic strips, and he just devoured them, and he became a huge fan. And so when he got this role, he just worked nonstop, not only physically, not only you know, you know, lifting weights and all that, and working out, but also just rereading the comic strips over and over again trying his best to kind of nail the the kind of mannerisms and the characterization that that Falk was going for in the in the right, comics right and, and I think he I, I think he was successful at it um yeah I mean there's well we could talk a, a lot about the subtleties of some of the dialogue and some of the interaction between characters but I think by and large um I think he dialed dialed in pretty well to what the Phantom was about um, he he seemed he seemed very much at home in the jungle setting, which which you wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people you know think of the Phantom as like Tarzan in a purple suit, mm-hmm. but I mean, it just but he he does he he does come off believable in that sort of very exotic setting. And I think when you're when you're talking about the the kind of dialogue and stuff, that's 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 one of the failings of this movie, and it's because. When it was in the original development stages, uh, Joe Dante was going to be directing it, and hmm, okay, and Jeffrey Bohm was still the writer, and they had worked together, and their actual their actual original intent was to do it as a spoof. Um, okay, and a lot of those elements still remained in the script after yes. Dante left the project, even though, yes. um, and and Simon Winter, to his credit, is a fan of the comic, so he tried to bring it back, make it more, take a more serious approach to it. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff that, and I think what stops it from going full into that territory, like I think the shadow did, is mm-hmm. um, 
is I think uh, has a lot to do with Billy Zane. I think he really I, I agree. dials I it agree. back and he really kind of injects that kind of realism and that kind of earnestness into the. The funny thing is, uh, like you, I just went went back and watched it again the other night, and uh, um, I I saw a lot more of that. Uh, I don't want to say silliness. That, that that's not a fair that's not a fair characterization. But I saw a, I saw a lot more of that tongue in cheek aspect mm. than I remember from the first time I saw it in a theater back in the day. And even subsequent times that I saw it a few years after that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things you get some distance from it. And you go back and look at it, and especially in the context of what we've seen to come out of out of Marvel Studios in the last ten or twelve mm-hmm. years, it's like, oh, okay, this, you know, it, it changes your perspective somewhat, and you start to see what was going on that maybe you didn't see, uh, you know, twenty five years ago when we were all a hell of a lot younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think also. One of the things I kind of liked about it, and it's funny you mentioned the MCU because that was on my mind too when I was watching this movie. And I was thinking in some ways this could be seen kind of as a prototype movie for the MCU. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's got, because a lot of the MCU films, they do have that kind of, they they keep it grounded and well, as grounded as you can be when you're dealing with, you know, (laughs) magic rocks and everything like that. But sure, sure. But they keep the characters are are grounded, are mostly realistic, but they do have these tongue in cheek aspects. And I think the way Billy Zane plays the Phantom is very much in that vein, um, especially when you yeah. compare it to um, like, you know, Michael Keaton, obviously very, very grimly serious portrayal yes. of, of Bruce Wayne. Billy Batman. Zane actually smiles a number of times in that scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I think this is the, the only time I think anyone had really kind of had this kind of combination of earnestness with tongue in cheek was probably Christopher Reeve. Yes. Yeah. And he kind of wrote the book. I mean, that guy, I, yeah. I, I, with each passing year since he's been gone and since that franchise, you know, kind of ended many years ago, I just, I, I go back and I look at him, especially in that first Superman movie, I think mm-hmm. this guy really worked at it. And this guy really nailed every aspect of this character, both as Superman, as Clark Kent, that, I mean, he kind of set the standard and, you know, for, for as dated as that movie might seem 40 mm-hmm. some years later, 43, what, 43 years later, um, there, I, I think people still look at him as like this is the guy who set the standard for at least the next twenty years of oh yeah or, or thirty years of movies like this of, of of that nature of that of that genre. Absolutely, yeah, I, I definitely co-sign that. We we covered that the Superman the movie back in our, our first episode uh, with Derek, and one of the things I remember talking about in that movie is the scene where he says um, where he's being interviewed by Lois and, and this yes. is kind of a digression folks I know but I wanted to <laughs> touch on this but there's that line when he says you know I'm here to fight for truth justice in the American way and Lois just mm-hmm. kind of laughs at him but he, he keeps it he plays it completely serious you like you believe he's being earnest in that scene he's not right. he's not delivering that line in a tongue-in-cheek way right 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 you you, you, and, you know if, if you're gonna if you're gonna put on that suit or any suit of that kind Mm-hmm. and play that kind of a role you really have to you as the actor or actress have to buy that character you right. really have to because you, you can't you can't sell it if you if you yourself don't buy it first and he, yeah he did both very well he bought into it completely and he sold it completely that so, was yeah. i think one of the failings of um of the shadow and also um you know some other superhero adaptations uh um small later season of smallville definitely come to mind is is the winking the constant mm-hmm. winking yes. it's like yes. yeah 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 you yes. know what we're doing you know what we're doing um but billy zane has none of that right he's just completely earnest he's you know and he's he's got this charm about him i think you know billy zane was acting in the wrong decade i think he should have been in superhero movies now 
Like this guy definitely has that kind of MCU quality. And mm-hmm. so much so that he could go either way. Like, I mean, you see him, because uh, he had shaved his head for this role to put the mask on because the mask wouldn't fit over his hair. Right, right, right. So all the scenes when he's unmasked, those were filmed initially. And then later on, all the scenes with him in the mask, he had had his shaved head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at him with it with his charm and with, you know, the bald head and he could have easily played a really convincing Lex Luthor too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Especially now as he's a, a, a significantly older man. I mean, I think yeah. it is... You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. He just uh, he has that presence about him. He has that sort of chiseled look about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, he, there's there's a lot more he could have done in that genre if, as you said, he had come along at a slightly different time. Yeah. You, know, you, you mentioned something a minute ago about how uh, I don't remember exactly how you said it. You know, it just it's, it's very much this movie is very much, very much grounded in the real world. There, mm-hmm. There's something there's something going on in this film that, you know, I think we've gotten kind of spoiled. Uh, by the MCU, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. I mean we, mm-hmm. you know, we we've come to really appreciate, and we've come to expect really highly, carefully, artistically choreographed action scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great; it's great to watch. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. But but this movie, it's like down and dirty. I mean, mm-hmm. like it, it, some of some of the fighting, some of the action, it's kind of clumsy. And if you think about it, that's kind of how how that kind of action would would take place in real life if you know yeah. if you're duking it out with somebody you, you're not it's it's not there's nothing really finessed about it you're it, people are getting bloody and they're tumbling over each other and and you see some of that in this movie which makes it kind of more real uh it, it's 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 less it, it's 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 less ballet and it's more mm-hmm. just like gritty boxing or mma it's just it's just hard work you know and, and i think that's it's to it's to the credit of this movie yeah, I think um, I was thinking the same thing when I was watching it last night. <clears throat> Excuse me. And watching it last night, I was thinking that the action looks pretty damn good for, you know, 1996, um, especially right. when you compare it to some of the the bigger productions that were being done at the time and right. where they tried to do too much with yes. despite what little they had access to. And yes, um, I think you know, Simon Winter deserves credit for that. He seemed to understand what limitations he had and made sure he worked within those. And yes. it, it really it really shows that you can make a, a decent superhero movie that looks good, even if you don't have, you know, you know, Disney money. Well there was there was no there was no wire work to speak of because right. you couldn't digitally erase that stuff because that, that technology didn't exist. Right. So I mean this movie like- had a budget of 45 million dollars that's like right as derek would often say that's like that wouldn't cover the catering budget on the mcu films right exactly exactly yeah it just yeah the the, the, the technology wasn't there to make the the stylized movies that we see mm-hmm. today but yeah. but in spite of that they you know they came out they came up with a pretty damn good movie in terms of visual effects and 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 and, and stunt work and choreography mm-hmm. They also have some pretty surprising names in this movie, too. One of the things yes. that always surprised me every time this movie, when I sit down and watch this movie, is seeing Catherine Zeta-Jones in it. Yes. Um, because I, I always forget that she was in this movie. And then I watch again, I'm like, oh, my God, that's Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. Well, the, I think, you know, you're a good bit younger than I am. <laughs> no one had really ever seen her before this movie. I I, I won't say it was her, this was her screen debut because it was not. Mm. But... But um, she had she hadn't done much by in, in 1996. She had right. done a few things, um, but this was a this was a pretty early role for her. She had done some film and television prior to this. Um, 
uh, not a whole lot, at least not much that was memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, and she was only like she was in the Mask of Zorro two years later, and that was that was when things really started to happen for her. Yeah. That was that was a, a much a, a very high profile role in a high profile movie, and that's when her career took off. But, but sorry, by, which one was that you said? The Mask of Zorro. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's in, right. in, in 90, 98, Yeah, yeah. Um, which was just two years after this one, but. Uh, but I, I think, you know, when she showed up, you know, she takes off the aviator mask in, in, in this in, in the Phantom and, you know, this gorgeous brunette. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody really had seen much of her at all prior to that. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was I won't say this movie was her, her, her launching point, but um, she was right on the cusp. I think I, I think it's fair to say that Mask of Zorro was her real launching point. But yeah, she, I was going to say the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's. It's funny that both of it, uh, these both these two pulp movies are really what kind of launched her career. Uh, because mm-hmm. up until this, she was kind of being typecast as the token pretty girl in, yes. in a lot of British yes. films. So yes. that's one of the reasons why she she had moved to LA. And then mm-hmm. she had done The Phantom and um and then she had done a, a CBS miniseries about Titanic, and that's when yes. Spielberg saw her, and that's when he put her in uh, Mask of Zorro. Mm-hmm. Um and and yeah, that was that was a really great move because I think she, just as much as Billy Zane, she does the she does the best job of kind of capturing that earnestness mixed with like that big of tongue in cheek aspect. And yes, I find myself watching her in this movie. I'm like, I wish she was the main villain than as opposed <laughs> to Treat Williams. Well, yeah, we could we could talk quite a bit about Treat Williams and how he how he. Uh how he interpreted this character but mm-hmm. but yeah no i i agree i think she was much more interesting um in in, in the villainous role um mm-hmm. you know and, and i don't say that as a guy for the obvious reasons yes certainly she was nice to look at but i mean but i think she she brought a lot more depth and there was something more interesting about her especially when she starts to turn a little bit towards mm-hmm. the maybe the third quarter of the film where she's you you get the sense that she's having some misgivings about this thing she's involved in and she's starting to ally herself with uh with uh the 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 diana uh mm-hmm. shoot what's her the the, the um the, uh, christy swanson character yeah um, yeah diana yeah uh, diana uh i'm gonna diana get palmer. right thank you diana palmer yes um you, you see her at, at some point she's she, you know she's realizing wait a minute maybe, maybe i'm into this thing too deep mm-hmm. and i need to redeem myself by just allying myself with this other female character and maybe we can get out of this without completely you know uh, just compromising ourselves and, right, and, and right. Uh, which which was an interesting kind of character twist there that you kind of didn't see coming the first time you saw it yeah um and they had, had a little hint at that which one of the things i did like about that is that little hint of not necessarily with her character but with um people around uh xander drags kind of looking at this guy like maybe we should this guy stop playing with the full deck was <laughs> when he's yeah. meeting with all those mob bosses and one of yes. them is just like what the hell is this? I was an altar boy. You know, what are we doing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Cause I, I, I always just watching this movie again, the other night, I'm thinking treat Williams is doing sort of like a poor man's knockoff of Gene Hackman as Lex mm-hmm. Luthor. Yeah. Um, just sort of like over the top bravado, um, enormously egotistical to the point of like, you know, narcissism, like, am I, am I not the smartest, most intelligent, most, most, uh, uh, most you know uh fascinating and mm-hmm. and it just it, it but it, but it, it worked for gene hackman because gene hackman was gene hackman exactly yeah. it, it just i just don't th- you know and and i felt like treat williams was kind of riffing on that whole idea of just sort of like you know maniacal and narcissistic and it just it it kind of didn't work for me 
yeah, if if you're going to do Gene Hackman, you better be Gene Hackman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, there's probably a little bit of you know Jack Nicholson Joker in there as well. And also, st- same same principle, which I think Christian Slater learned the hard way. If you're going to do Jack Nicholson, you better be Jack Nicholson. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, watching Treat Williams in this movie, it's just like there is no piece of scenery that he's not gnawing on throughout. Oh yeah, well, and and, it, and it's and it and it feels like by the middle of the movie, it feels like he's not even like he he's sort of like his 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 dialogue. He's just it sounds like he's shouting every line of dialogue from the mm-hmm. top of a mountain, like you know. Yeah. And now I'm going to say this. And yeah. now I'm going to say that, and and it just it, it, it there was almost like a a lockstep cadence to it, like you just you don't even hear the words anymore. It's just it's just Treat Williams mm-hmm. reciting the next line of dialogue, and yeah. it just it just it, it 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 became very not believable for me by by about it, the middle of the film. It stands out so much when you compare it to how Catherine Zeta Jones delivers, you know, yes. very similarly cheesy lines, like the when they the first when they first kidnapped Diana and. Um, Sala has this thing where she says, you know, he's in love with you and you, and you've been, you're in love with him and all that. It's just, it sounds so cheesy and so childish, but somehow it Zeta works. Jones makes it work. In that yes. scene. She's the, she's the only one who can deliver that line and make it not sound ridiculous. Even when she starts asking Diana Palmer about her boots and where she mm-hmm. got them, it, it, there's something for his, for his comical, and I don't want to say comical, but for his, for his tongue in cheek as that is, it just, it's like, you could almost, you know, here's two attractive women in a room mm-hmm. comparing comparing clothes yeah. and where they got them. Never mind that one's a villain and one's sort of the damsel in distress. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, like okay, they're admiring each other's clothes. <laughs> so. And uh, and speak and it's also an, a real contrast when you see how Zeta Jones plays the role, which is you know compared to how Christy Swanson plays the role of Diana Palmer, or as I call her, the the terrible Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it just uh, she's. She's trying to be the. She, she, I I I felt like she was trying too hard to be feisty, mm-hmm. and it just it was just too heavy handed. Um, yeah. It just it just like okay, we get it. You're feisty. Now just get back to being the character and stop trying to show us how feisty you are. And just some of her dialogue is just cringy. Like I don't know. I mean, granted, it's they're not giving her a lot to work with. So I, but yeah. still, like you know zane and zeta jones were given the same terrible lines to work with and they somehow made them work but Mm -hmm. she just could not like when she's like you know do you know how many laws you've broken i'm just like it just sounds ridiculous yeah yeah it's like he he's he's a vigilante you know Mm -hmm. that's what vigilantes do they break laws all the time yeah 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 so she um and in fact i i found myself wishing as i'm watching this movie that they had just kind of combined they just gotten rid of Christy Swanson and Treat Williams and just made Sala the love interest slash antagonist in this movie. I think it would have enjoyed it a lot better. Sure. I mean, it worked. It worked in the Flash Gordon story where I, I, I am not as familiar with it, but at some point Flash Gordon becomes like sort of quasi romantically involved with mm-hmm. Ming the Merciless's daughter. And uh, there's sort of this sort of romantic sexual tension, tension that goes on between the two, which makes for a really fascinating story, which would have worked here, I think, to your point. I think it so, too. Yeah, it would have made it Especially when you get to the, the, the third act and you have uh, Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa as uh, Kabai Singh. And, yes. you know, and, and, you know, he's Tagawa is, is great in these types of roles, like, you know, Mortal Kombat or, or in this mm-hmm. and just like mm-hmm. he's got that 
just like Zane and Zeta Jones, I think he's got that, he toes that line between not being too over the top, but just yes. being theatrical enough. There's this wild-eyed thing that he does. Even, yes, you know, yeah. all the dialogue aside, the, the stuff that he does with his face is just kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And for, for years, I I had looked at this guy, and I'd say, if they were ever going to do the Mandarin in live action, they should look at, mm-hmm. how, at how Tagawa plays these types of characters. That's funny. I, I think I, saw, I thought the same thing when I watched it the other night. I thought, this guy, you know, if, if, if someone was going to be bold enough to actually cast an Asian mm-hmm. in the Mandarin role, this, this could be the guy. Well, we did eventually get it, uh, but a very different version of yeah, the Mandarin, right? In, exactly, um, right? Uh, and uh, in Shang Chi, right? Um, but but yeah, he was he was, uh, and I love it every time he turns up in a movie like this because you don't expect him, and then all of a sudden he just pops up on the ship and like, oh crap, there's Tagawa, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, also, I think James Ramar was also in this too, and he's had. I'm, James Ramar is an interesting actor because he should have had a much better career than he's had. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I, 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 I'm not as familiar with his, his career. I'm, I'm, I was aware of him. I, I, well, let's say I, when I first saw the movie way back, mm-hmm. I was not familiar with the guy. I have since become more, but I, I can't say I tracked his career uh, a whole lot. Um, he well, because certainly... he's been in a he's been in a lot of mostly like for a long time. He was just like kind of like this B movie actor. Like he was right, in, right, you right. know, they he, they brought him in to replace Christopher Lambert on the second Mortal Kombat movie when mm-hmm. Christopher Lambert decided that movie was beneath him. And right. Um, and he had done like a lot of voiceover work. He had done like these little bit parts. And I don't think anyone really kind of gave him credit for what he could do until yes. he popped up in Dexter. Right. And right. I think that's really what change people's opinions of him and watching mm-hmm. him in this movie you can kind of see those those early hints of what he'd be capable of later on well he he's in this movie he's like he's of all the henchmen and granted he's sort of the lead henchman mm-hmm. uh, among drax you know crew um he he's the like he's the one who's like you is mo- the most believable he, he's the, yeah. the least the least goofy the the, the rest are kind of like you know clumsy idiots but mm-hmm. i mean there's, there's a there's a line and, and i can't remember there you know there's a lot of guns in this movie and there's a lot of gunfights in this movie and and i don't know it, i don't know if this was the an idea of either the, the screenwriters or the director but i don't know if you noticed but for as many guns as there are in this movie everyone seems to be a pretty lousy shot yeah until and, yeah. until like the phantom at the end starts like you know taking people out in that in that sort of that underground you know lagoon thing mm-hmm. um but but there's a line and i don't remember which gunfight it was because there are many where like his his pals are shooting at whoever they're shooting at and and no one's no one's hitting the mark mm-hmm. and and remar says what's the matter with you guys can't you can't you hit anything and i'm thinking <laughs> i'm thinking is that like is that is that sort of like the, the director or the screenwriters apologizing for all mm-hmm. the like all the missed rounds that don't really hit the mark because it just seems like it's like i'm glad you noticed that too because i've been watching that for the last 20 minutes and no one's hitting anything here but kind of reminds me of um in uh the batman 66 movie when they've got they've got batman kidnapped or captured and then the riddler's just Mm -hmm. like why don't we just kill him and just get over with and everyone was like no no we gotta have this big elaborate was like just fucking kill the guy and i felt like that was (laughs) that was frank gorson just you know stating the obvious out of character 
if we do that, it'll only be a 20 minute movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, he was, he was pretty good. And, you know, again, I think if you had elevated his role and gotten rid of treat Williams, this would have had yes. a much, been a much stronger movie. Yes. Um, and then also I was kind of surprised, uh, cause I'm watching the, the guy who plays, um, you know, kid, kid's father, the previous yes. phantom. And yes. And I'm watching, like, ah, oh, man, I know that guy. I know that guy. And then looking at the cast mm-hmm. list, it's like Patrick McGuhan, the prisoner. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's I mean, another he was... actor who, you know, he brings this more kind of, like, um, sophistication or kind of, like, prestige to, to this kind of movie. I had read somewhere recently, probably since I, I watched the movie again, um, he at one point was being considered for James Bond. I don't know where where in the history of the franchise that was but at one mm-hmm. point he was being considered for James Bond he was also being considered uh for the time the the, the Simon Templar role as the okay. saint yeah. either before or after uh Roger Moore I don't know um but mm-hmm. but he was like he was you know on the short list for some pretty iconic uh uh you know British figures uh, you know British uh, uh fictional heroes uh yeah for whatever reason they just didn't pull the trigger on that but yeah yeah, and um, he was also in Danger Man as well, so it yes. would have made um, total sense for him to have been in the running. Oh, it says here that he had actually turned it down. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking up, I found this, ad, um, this article right here, and apparently before Sean Connery. Um, oh, he, I, I, I'm, for moral reasons, he was, I think he was like a pretty, pretty staunch Catholic, I think. And he, yeah, he said, he I, said I, that I, there was too much emphasis on sex and violence. Yes, yes. I do remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah. So he so, was, yeah, so yeah, he, he had so, turned it down, which, okay. And you well, look a, at him in the prisoner and he's basically James Bond. So that's a, I mean, that's a big meaty high profile role to just say mm-hmm. no, thank you to, but yeah, you know, and also interesting enough about this, about the phantom is Sergio Leone was actually interested in the property at one point too. Interesting. Uh, and you can imagine like, you know, the dream projects that never were. I think Sergio Leone's Phantom would definitely be up there. Yeah. You know, the, the, the producers of this film, Alan Ladd Jr. and Robert Evans, those are like some pretty, or were some pretty high powered producers in Hollywood for like mm-hmm. several decades each. And I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't, I was kind of surprised to see that because I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't associate those two, producers with a movie like this I, mm-hmm. I, I would almost think that like um they those two guys would almost consider a movie like this to, uh, of this genre to be beneath them in some way yeah yeah um and also you had uh just looking up a few joel schumacher had 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 also been been a, considered for directing as well which hmm. um would have been interesting to see how he would have approached something like this because i, I think Joe Schumacher gets too unfairly judged for his Batman stuff when he yeah. was a much better director than that. Right, right. You know, let me back up a second to you. You mentioned Patrick McGowan and mm. as 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 uh, Kit Walker's father. You know, I, I, the the thing I could never figure out in this story is, you know, at, at several points along the way, Kit is quote unquote talking to or having conversations with his deceased father, mm-hmm. and I. It's never clear to me, and I don't know if it's clear to anybody. Is 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 the elder Kit Walker, or is the, is the elder Phantom actually like visiting him as a as a as an actual spirit, or, or or is this just sort of like some kind of internal monologue 
that you know many of us have with a parent who is gone and we you know, it just mm -hmm. i couldn't quite figure that out did you get a sense of what what, what that was that was never really made clear because there's a point where he's in the back of a taxi cab right and he literally he turns to the empty back seat and says well dad here's what's going on and and mm -hmm. and the cabbie guy named al he, he's looking in the rearview mirror and he's like well who are you talking to and mm -hmm. and i guess i'm kind of asking the same question as i'm watching the movie who exactly is he talking to the memory of his father is his father actually visiting him from the great beyond or, or what's going on there yeah, yeah and, and and i wonder what if you what you thought of that i think the movie was trying to make the case that he was um that he was talking to the ghost of his father like kind of um um kind of a black panther type of thing with when he sure. okay. um that was and that kind of gives it the, the quasi mystical thing when you think about the ring and all that and with the mm -hmm. skulls. So I think that was right. kind of what was hinted at there. Right. And especially because in that scene in the cab you're talking about, you know, his father gives him some new information, you know, you know, when he right. asks, you know, why, why does Quill have your belt? And he says, you know, and he tells him the story of how he died. And yes, so, yes. So that I think gives you a hint that I think that's the clearest hint that it's, that it is actually the ghost of his father. But I don't know. I personally kind of like it where it's unknown and it's not clear because okay. I do kind of like the idea that, you know, living in the jungle and, you know, being immersed in the legends of the past and all that has has made Kit a little off. And he's actually just yeah. imagined his father's there. Right, right. I, I guess, I mean, I... I because I even so, I... because when his, um, you know, when his, uh, when Garan comes in and says, who are you talking to? And he yes. says, oh, nobody. Right. Talking right. to myself. So you, I think he's right. Like, yeah. So yeah. you think if, you know, if this was a real thing, if his, you know, the the guy who's serving the Phantom would be someone who could know about it. But I think the fact mm -hmm. that he doesn't. So I think the movie does both those things to kind of leave it open to interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It just, it, it was, it kind of, and again, the other night was not the first time I've seen it, obviously, mm -hmm. but just, I really started to think about it. Like what exactly, who exactly is he talking to? Is he just talking to a memory or is he talking to an actual spirit that visits him on a regular mm -hmm. basis? And and you're suggesting that maybe it's 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 intentionally unclear and mm -hmm. it sort of stay that way just to you know to, to to sort of you know to 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 accentuate the mystical element of the jungle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can leave make an argument either way for. I think sure. you can make a case for either one. I think. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, any other anything else you wanted to mention about this movie? I think we kind of covered most of the things I wanted to talk about. You know, it's it's it, as as I recall, and I, and I I did a little reading recently, but I I remember the 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 critics were all over the place with this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, as I recall, it did not do well in the box office. I saw it in an empty theater. Yeah, and I don't know, if, and it was only I think it had only been out for a couple few weeks, and the theaters were already empty. I, literally, I was the only person yeah. in this. It was one of the smaller cement well, bunkers, I mean, but I, I uh, yeah talking about you know box office as you mentioned it was 45 million dollar budget but mm -hmm. the worldwide gross was just over 17 million so it did not even right. make back its own money right right and i guess you know it's just i guess my 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 takeaway is you know it's it's an underrated film it's not perfect mm -hmm. it has its flaws and i think we've pointed out a few and maybe there's a few we haven't pointed out it it's it, it is not without its flaws but you know, for what it was in the time that it was made, it was pretty ambitious. It was pretty true to the source material. Mm -hmm. It was pretty entertaining in an Indiana Jones kind of way. Um, I think it deserved a little bit better than what it got. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so too. Um, and I think 
part of the problem is the time period it came out in because yes. mm-hmm. when comic book stuff was coming out back in this time period it was mm-hmm. not treated seriously like yes. if you look at like i've been you know lois and clark recently came by onto hbo max so i thought i'd go back and try and rewatch some of those episodes and mm-hmm. you talk about not aging well that show has not yeah. aged well like it is well yeah excessively cheesy yes um yeah and and you look at something like the shadow too which it's got that same kind of energy to it the rocketeer and the phantom though they they don't they're much more much more serious and i think mm-hmm. the rocketeer plays it pretty much straight throughout which is why it is you know it still has this cult following and right. the phantom is operating in this weird middle ground where yes half the people are playing it straight and half the people think they're doing a parody right right and and it and it it's it, it and that doesn't work because not mm. everyone's on the same page. Right. Yeah. It, it's a similar problem I had with, um, with Punisher Warzone, which we covered a few episodes ago, where you had, mm. you know, um, uh, Ray Stevenson, you know, playing the Punisher, very straight, very gritty, very hard nodes. And then you got, um, I can't remember the guy who's playing Jigsaw, but you got him and his brother who were just like acting like they're in a Batman 66 episode. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's just that disconnect never does not work at all in this movie. Well, I would go so case. I would go so far as to say is that some of that was going on in in the Batman '89 movie, and 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 it didn't necessarily. For as much as I like that movie, mm-hmm. and as much as a, as a lot of people like that movie, it didn't necessarily do the movie a whole lot of many favor. I mean, I I think you know everyone says Jack Nicholson was just brilliant in that movie, and I think for mm-hmm. the most part he was. But I think there was a there was a moment at which he 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 stepped over the line from from sinister to just sort of absurd or mm-hmm. silly and, and and I think you know I think I, it, it, he kind of lost me at that moment you know mm-hmm. it just it's it's still a great movie don't get me wrong but I think I, I, um, just out of curiosity which moment do you think that was is there a specific moment in the movie I, you're thinking of I'm thinking I, 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 I I'm just I'm seeing a bunch of scenes in my head I don't have the sequence right I think when he shows up. At Vicky Vale's apartment. Oh, okay. I think yeah. I think I think that's when things just get just too like goofy for me. Mm-hmm. Like the things he's saying. And well, we, we could we could do a whole episode on the dialogue of that movie because mm-hmm. there's so many pieces of dialogue in that movie that just make absolutely no sense to me. Like mm-hmm. like 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 Nicholson was just improving, or or maybe Nicholson and Burton were sort of just like coming up with stuff on the fly. I don't know, but there there are so many times when I'm I I both when i first saw it and to this day i kind of go wait mm-hmm. what the hell did that mean what, what 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 was he what was he saying there you know like when he when he yells to his attendant we're going to ship him out a whole new door mm-hmm. what does that mean mm-hmm. i mean i just and, and there there are many moments like that in the movie where it's just sort of like like it's you can almost hear tim burton saying okay jack just say something just say mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. And, and um i think there are a few too many moments like that in that movie i mean i may be like burned at the stake as a heretic because i know that's considered a classic and i and i think it's a great film but mm-hmm. but i think there are moments where it just it needed to tighten up in terms of like get again like we said before getting everyone on the same page and deciding okay is this are we doing this straight are we doing this tongue in cheek mm-hmm. um you know it, 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 i think there were a few moments where they needed to do more of that or burton needed to do more of that mm-hmm. to just to just make it more streamlined and a little bit more direct i mean those are fair points and i think um I think you get a lot of leeway when you're playing the Joker just because of the nature of that sure, character. Because you're the Joker. Exactly. Right, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that they can get away with a little bit of that. But if but you are right. If you look at some of the 
I think Batman Forever is probably another good example of this, where you've yes. got the villains acting like they're in, you know, Batman 66, but then yes. you've got, you know, Val Kilmer and Michael Goff at, trying to play it straight in the right. midst of all this. Right, exactly. And, and you, mm -hmm. then you get Chris O'Donnell acting like, you know, uh, a 40-year-old petulant child. Right, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whose career, by the way, has gone pretty much nowhere as far as I can tell, but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It is interesting because he was up for that role against Leonardo DiCaprio and looking at how those two paths diverged in the woods. <laughs> I, I can't, well, I can't say I'm all terribly fond of Leo DiCaprio either. As, as an oh, really? In general, but no, I just, I, 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 I often look at him in, in whatever movie he's in and I just, I just say, I don't quite get it. I don't, I don't see what the appeal of this guy has been for so long. I just, um, I mean, you talk about a forty, a petulant forty-year-old. That's that. I that's that's about all I see when I see Leo DiCaprio on on, on the screen. It just like you know, forty going on fifteen. Like mm -hmm. you know, I, I I don't know. I just it for whatever reason he just just it's just a personal thing. He just he just never did it for me. Mm -hmm. And um, so going back to talking about the 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 Phantom, uh, yes. it apparently has gone. It had it, it did have decent sales on on video and DVD after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you're right. The, the critic responses were pretty mixed. I mean, um, it's got a 43% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. Um, you know, Ebert seemed to like it. He said it was one of the best yeah. looking movies in a long time. And I, he that gave surprised it me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, I, I remember, do, do you remember, well, you might not remember the show Siskel and Ebert at the movies. It was basically like a half hour syndicated show. They I would, mean, I never watched it, but I remember it being yeah. on I remember, I remember watching them review that movie, um, mm -hmm. and uh, Roger Ebert seemed to pretty much dislike every movie he ever saw in his life because mm -hmm. he, he was often very curmudgeonly about his his take on just about any movie. It, it's I remember it surprised me at the time, and again, 1996. I'm only in my I'm going to say my my mid uh, my mid twenties, and I'm watching. He's like, wow, he actually likes this movie. This mm -hmm. is like. And it, it, it wasn't the kind of movie I would expect Roger Ebert to like, but he apparently did. I remember watching that that's that segment of him reviewing that movie and 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 the, and the snippet you just read. I just it's true. He he for whatever reason, he just he, he it was the thumbs up for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, and other people, they really liked the kind of nostalgic tone about it. But yes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it just for some it just did not quite hit that right mark for whatever it was mm -hmm. with with audiences. Um, and they had actually originally planned to do two sequels. Like this was actually intended to be the first part of a trilogy. Um, and Billy Zane was signed on to do all three, but they got those plans got scrapped after, after sure. sales. Sure, I, you, you and you can tell just by the way the film is crafted that that, mm -hmm. that that was the plan. I mean, a lot was like, you know, the, the the ending wasn't really much of an ending at all. It was more like you know, stay tuned or tune in tomorrow or tune in next year or whatever because mm -hmm. this. There, the, the, you know, there's there's more we can do with this guy. Um, well, especially so because in uh, as late as 2008, uh, Paramount Pictures was still thinking about doing a sequel with wow. you know, Zane with and Swanson and Zeta Jones all coming back. That's like um, 12 years later, yeah. Yeah, okay. but then um, you know, so kind of doing what they've done with with other franchises um, mm -hmm. uh, lately, like with like Rocky, Terminator, uh, and all those right. sorts of things. Um, right. But then they had um, they had scrapped those plans and then they had tried to do a, a reboot called the phantom legacy and sam worthington was being thought of as the lead for that okay. uh but then by 2014 all those plans had fallen completely through and that's the most recent thing with mark gordon uh as producer attached to um a reboot 
And then, of course, there was also the the Phantom uh, TV series in. Um... Yes. Okay, so I think you've seen that, so you could probably give some comments on that. I I, I don't. I I have. I, I'm aware oh, okay. of it. I have. Yeah. I I really couldn't. I'm I'm aware that there was a series. I did not. <laughs> there was a whole section of my life where I was mm. watching like zero television. But mm. was that animated or was that? There was an animated show too. There was a. It was there was an animated show. I think in the early. T- to late 90s early 2000s called the phantom 2040 yeah i remember that i remember i remember i was aware of that but again i mean that late 90s early 2000s i was like i don't think i even owned a tv for several mm-hmm. years so yeah oh um, no that was uh that was late 90s that was a 90 it was from 90 mid 90s 94 to 96 okay so that actually predated the movie which is interesting yeah that is interesting okay um because i don't think i'd even heard of that show until after the the cartoon mm-hmm. um after the movie i mean Okay. Um, and it had it involved uh, Peter Chung, who had done uh, Eon Flux, and apparently the the show had gotten really um, it had gotten really positive reviews. So that's interesting. I'd never known it was that well received. So I'm assuming be... from the title that it took place in the future, correct? Yeah, yeah. It, it says, um, and the central character is said to be the 24th Phantom. Okay. The, um, the, the reason I asked the question is because, um, and, and granted, I'm a, I, I freely admit I am a sucker for this period, late thir- mm-hmm. the 1930s through, through World War II era. I, you know, I, I always wonder how, how, how realistic is it to think that you can take a character that's rooted in that period and completely pull him out of that and put him in, put him that far in the future. And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a risky enterprise, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd never seen this show, um, even though I was a kid back then, I'd never watched it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It was, it was syndicated. So maybe that's why, maybe it just wasn't on any yeah. of the networks I was watching regularly, yeah. but it had some pretty interesting, like, you know, Margot Kidder and Ron Perlman did voice work for it with uh, really? Mark Hamill as well. Okay. Um, I'm trying to see where they, Lee Romini had done some voice work on this too. Yeah. Okay. Um, she had, Margot Kidder had done the series Villa um rebecca madison chairperson of maximum inc and then and ron perlman had played a a cyborg character interesting um so yeah i'm gonna have to try to look this up now because it's like it it seems to be set in like a a post-apocalyptic um very um you know late stage capitalist type world because it says that the the story it's the year 2040 all environmental disasters and the economic resource wars from the early 21st century have decimated the fragile ecosystem balance of an earth once teeming with life everywhere mm-hmm. the privileged and wealthy continue to thrive in expensive real estate developments that tower above the suffering masses the victims of mm-hmm. earth's misfortune have been forced to subsist on scavenged refuge from the past on the mangled streets of forlorn city states hmm. so it's i it just Again, I mean, we're talking about a character whose backstory mm-hmm. is deeply rooted in the jungle, mm-hmm. and I don't know, you know, can you make that work in the setting you're talking, the setting setting you just described? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying you can or can't, but you're taking it pretty far afield from its its basic roots and its basic source. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be curious to see what what you know. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I I think I have seen it available on Amazon on, mm-hmm. on, on disc or, or Blu-ray or, or both. Um, it, yeah, it'd probably be worth checking out at least. Yeah, because I I'd never thought much about it, but I'd never heard much about it. But after reading the the positive reviews that it's gotten and the premise, I'm much more curious about it now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Phantom they had done a a TV miniseries in what was this? This was uh, 2009 is when they did this miniseries, mm. and 
I mean, they'd like completely redesigned the costume and made it look like almost like paramilitary-esque, I think is the best way to describe it. Of and, course, big surprise, right? And it just, it's, it's weird when you look at something like this and you think about how they're trying to make it more grounded and realistic and mm-hmm. they only end up making it look ridiculous. Yeah, I, 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 it feels like that's the go-to half the time. It's just like, mm-hmm. let's put armor on this guy, you know? Um, and it, it just that it, it always seems like that's the go-to anymore. Let's 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 give them a suit of armor and yeah. and, and you know and just you know just I, I I always wonder why you know what why is that necessarily considered an improvement? I don't I know. I mean I think it, it depends on the character a lot, I think. Yeah. I mean yeah. um but it and granted, I mean, you know, you're talking about a jungle hero who's running around in purple spandex, so it doesn't right, quite right. work to begin with. What do we with. know? <laughs> yeah. You're right. Um but uh but yeah it just it is just it just looks bad like it just looks it looking at the i'm looking at the dvd cover right now and it just it looks really cheap it it's well, yeah I, and apparently the show had not done well so um so mm-hmm. that 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 says a lot about it and, and you're talking about a character who you know i, I joked before about you know tarzan in a, in, a, in a purple suit but i mean you're mm-hmm. talking about a character who is supposed to be very physically uh limber Mm-hmm. Um, you know, graceful, uh, can move through the jungle, you know, uh, in a very natural setting. If you slap armor on that guy, I think you kind of lose that sensibility pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, John, any other things you wanted to mention about the Phantom before we close up? Um, I don't think so. I, I like, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it was fun to go back and watch it again. Um, uh, I, I think we've come a long way in telling that kind of story and making that kind of movie. Uh, technology has allowed that. And I think, mm-hmm. I think, you know, but I think, you know, you, you can't have what we have now without going back and it, it, without having movies like that to sort of pave the way. I mean, it just, and I think you sort of said that at the outset of this conversation, mm-hmm. you, you just, you can't get to where we are now without, you know, making some movies that are a little bit more gritty and a little less perfect. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know maybe, maybe some of the themes are showing, but, but you got to start somewhere. And I think, I think the Phantom was uh, a, a very noble effort, even if it didn't do well commercially or, or with the critics. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's, it, it, I think it's, it's worth it just for seeing uh, Billy Zane in a, in a superhero S role. Right. Um, sure, I mean, cause sure. it, and it, and it does make you think, you know, kind of what could have been if he had been, if he had gotten like a, a been able to, you know, cause he's, he's a pretty underrated actor in general, I think. He, yeah. I don't think, like you know, we were talking about James Ramar. I don't think he's really quite gotten the due that he's pro- that he probably that he's deserved. Yeah, he he always seems like he's been. He, he seems like he's always been like on the verge of really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of making a big splash and taking the next big step in his career, but it never quite happened. Yeah, for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and you never know; it could change because you know Ron Perlman. I don't think really quite got that big break until he did Hellboy. So, right. I think um, Zane's in his fifties now, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's still possible, <laughs> still time. Yeah. So hey, I'm 58, or I'm almost yeah. 58. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, John. Um, anything you wanted to promote? Uh, tell people where to find you before we close up. Well, uh, I, I will say this. Uh, I, I mentioned Flinch Books when I, I gave my little introduction. Uh, we've been we've been doing it now. Jim Beard and I have been doing it now for about six years. Uh, just just literally the other day, like uh, I want to say December 1st. Uh, we came out with our our our, our brand new uh, anthology called Blood on the Blade. Mm-hmm. It is uh, is a collection of ten uh, sword and sorcery stories. 
please don't ask me to rattle off all the all the writers because I <laughs> couldn't do it off the top of my head. But uh, there's some really fine stories in there. It's uh, it's a direction we didn't expect to go to go into, but it, it just you know an opportunity presented itself, and we just said you know we've got some good writers and good stories. Let's do this, and uh, we've got some great cover art by Mark Wheatley. Uh, early response has been very enthusiastic. Um, we're, we're very excited about it. Um, I did not myself contribute a story. I wrote the introduction, but I did a hell of a lot of editing of all the content, uh, as did Jim. But, uh, if, if, you know, if you're looking for something new from Flinch, that's, that is literally hot off the presses. I, I like I said, I think it was December, December 1st was what, uh, we, we promised to have it out by the November, the end of November. And we missed a mark by like 12 hours. The, the thing was on, it was available on Amazon. It went up on Amazon like noon on the on the first. So so it is it is it is now available. Uh, check it out. Blood on the Blade, uh, ten stories of sword and sorcery. Um, we're very excited about it, and uh, it sounds like a lot of people, a lot of other people are too. Okay, great, cool. Yeah. All right, um, well, John, thanks so much for for coming on the show to talk about the Phantom. Uh, Thank it was you. Nice. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Have you come on again at some point in the future? Sure, love to. Thank you. Uh, so that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephiles. Also, just a note to everybody, this is going to be the last episode of the year. Um, I believe when you're listening to this, it's probably right before Christmas when this episode is, is coming out. Uh, so we are going to actually have a little bit of a break until after the new year. Uh, I'm going to be in Chicago, uh, actually leaving later this week. This I'm recording this on December 5th. And we're coming back after Christmas, but then we have to do two week quarantine in Tokyo in a hotel. So then after that, we'll be able to come back. So I won't be back here to actually get into the studio to record any new episodes until about early January. So, uh, so just be patient with us. I think I'm going to probably schedule some some repeat episodes uh, in that time frame too. So you guys got some other stuff to revisit um while i'm away uh but anyway thanks for listening and if you are interested in um in being on the show you can drop me a line superherocinephiles.com there's a contact form you can also find ways there to support the show and we are at super cinema pod on both twitter and instagram thanks so much for watching thanks for listening and we will see you in the new year you have been listening to the superhero cinephiles podcast follow us on twitter and instagram at super cinema pod Join our Facebook group by searching for Superhero Cinephiles, where you can interact with us and other superhero fans. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a regular supporter at Patreon or make a one-time donation through PayPal, both of which can be found at our website, SuperheroCinephiles.com. If you buy or rent any movies through the Amazon links at our site, it helps support the show. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.